was everything did you remember to sleep what a surprise let's talk and let's laugh cause we got so much to tell you so let's go kick some art art And welcome to Kick Arts with Emma and Stephen, New Zealand's comprehensive art show brought to you on Planet FM 104.6 and streaming live around the globe thanks to our podcasts, which you can download from planetaudio.org.nz. Tonight, we have another night of variety in store for you as we chat to two fabulous Kiwi authors, plus check in with the curator of Auckland Museum, a director of Dunedin-based production company DKCM, and award-winning performance artist Alexa Wilson chats about their latest work. Check us out at kickarts.org.nz to find out what's happening in your area and how you can support us to stay on air. Now, to kick off the show, here is Ed Bird and Anne Tarrant's latest offering, a guy like me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. French fries, diamond skies. You sing sweet lullabies to my eyes. Champagne, listening to tea pain. There's magic in the air, just like David Blaine. Sunsets and a selfie and beach sets. Sand in our hair, we'll have a night we won't forget. A perfect combination of sweetness. How about it? A girl like you and a guy like me. Living in a fantasy and Girl like you and a guy like me 
And that was Ed Bird and Ant Terrence, A Guy Like Me. Great fun song. Well done, of course, Ant who created our intro. So always keen to support. Now, Emma, you're beaming in from a different part of Aotearoa tonight. Where are you? I am. I am down in Nelson for five days. So I had a workshop I ran with some students down here yesterday as part of Stagentics. And then I'm catching up with family for the first time that I've seen them since September 2020. And then halfway through the week, I'm over to Blenheim for what was meant to be our Music Theatre New Zealand conference, which was cancelled. But the executive are still having our two-day face-to-face followed by the AGM. Nice. Oh, well, you're zipping around. It's nice to get on a plane and escape. Speaking of which, more and more people, of course, now can get on a plane and escape. Have you planned anything further than New Zealand? There is talk of a trip to Australia in October, but I'm not quite ready to jump straight on a plane and go, and nor have I got the money because the international flights aren't cheap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we're pre-recording this, so we're, we're a week out, listeners, from when you're hearing it. But back in back seven days ago, um, of course, we've now moved to just seven-day isolation if you have COVID or are a close contact. If you've had it, then you get a 90-day reprise from not having to isolate. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'm trying to rehearse the show at the moment, Emma, and it's so hard because so many people are away. And right up to the last minute, you know, I can suddenly test positive and are away. So you're trying to plan a schedule, really not knowing who's going to be there. Definitely. I'm finding the same with my rehearsals for my two shows as well. It's, it is. It's, it's a very hard time. And we hear later this evening in a couple of our interviews about crystal ball gazing. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got an eclectic mix tonight, Emma. So shall we rip into the first interview? Let's kick it off. And now we are joined on a sunny Sunday afternoon as we are pre-recording by Doug Carmo from DKCM in Dunedin. How are you, Doug? Oh, kia ora, kia ora, Stephen and, and Emma. I'm, I'm great, thank you very much. And look, thanks so much for inviting me to to, um, to be a part of Kick Arts. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a lovely invitation to have, so thank you very much. So, first of all, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what is DKCM? Okay, so DKCM has had sort of a couple of reincarnations over the years. I started a, a, um, a corporate entertainment company in Auckland. This is going back uh, in 97. I started a company called OMAC Pro. Um, um, and, and a good colleague, a colleague of ours, Emma uh, Russell Dixon, will laugh his head off about OMAC Pro. Um, um, but I started that company, uh, OMAC Pro, back in '97, which was just sort of, sort of, to, um, sort of, I guess, to create some income in between jobs uh, as as a, either um, performer on in musical theatre or as a director with a musical theatre. So um, and so, I, I used to produce all sorts of different uh, corporate shows for um, for corporate clients up in up in Auckland and then I moved down in 2004 from Auckland I moved away from Auckland in 2004 to Queenstown and I started a company called Ignite Productions down there and then and then when I came through to Dunedin in 2006 DKCM was born DKCM is uh, stands for Doug Carmo Creative Management and again the, I guess the bulk of my work still sits and lies in, in inside that corporate arena which is uh, corporate entertainment but of course my passion and my love is inside musical theatre and um, and so DKCM sort of uh, has has two 
core functions. One is inside musical theatre as a producer and director, and the other side to that is, is of course, um, my my role within uh, corporate entertainment throughout New Zealand. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about how you fell into your passion for musical theatre. Where did that all spring from? Well, it was. I mean, I I danced ever since the age of seven. So I I did um, started uh, tap dancing up in Nelson with a, a darling, darling tap dancing teacher, Marlene Russell, and um, and so I, I I danced from the age of seven right through until uh, I think I finished at about twenty one, um, and and it was about. I think it was about 22, 23 when, when uh, I was dating a girl at the time who was in a production in Nelson. It was Carousel, actually. And uh, actually, in fact, Tim Beveridge was playing the lead in Carousel at the time. And and I thought, you know, as, as this green sort of had never been involved in theatre, all I'd ever danced for was medals and competitions. So I, I was never introduced to theatre or, or, or shown that that was a pathway that I could use my dance. It was always just a dance for medals and competitions and, and, and see how well you did. But I remember walking into this, um, into this production one night when I was invited to go and meet the director who was Duncan Whiting at the time. Um, and you know, God bless you, Duncan. And uh, and of course, Tim Beveridge was singing uh, Billy's soliloquy at the time. And I walked into this uh, into into the Nelson operatic rooms, and I had just finished um, rugby training. I was I was playing um, I was playing rugby for uh, for Nelson Bay's at the time. So it was Nelson Bay's Colts at that stage. And uh, and so I walked into this uh, rehearsal room, not knowing really what I was walking into. Harvard in mud from head to toe. And, and Duncan Whiting sort of stood up and uh, walked around. We took one look at me and said, you'll do. And that was, and that was my foray into, into musical theatre. So I got into musical theatre because of a, a girl, really. And, um, and I did that show. And I still remember that that was really, there was quite an epiphany that happened in that. And that was that I was running late during production week to during the tech rehearsals, I was running late to the theatre and I walked in the wrong door. I walked in the stage door and onto the stage of the Majestic Theatre in Nelson, which is no longer there now, um, into the Majestic Theatre, a beautiful theatre. And I walked out and all the cast was in the green room. And so I walked onto the stage of the Majestic Theatre and just saw the lights on and just went, wow, wow, this is something really, this is something really special. This is maybe this is the only time that I'm actually going to be on stage by myself and have the limelight. <laughs> and I, and so I stood there for a moment and went, this is really something quite special. And, and so I guess that was my, um, my moment where I just went, um, you know, I, I, maybe I need to be looking at this uh, a little bit more seriously. And maybe this is something that I could do um, moving forward uh, and, and look at maybe doing this as, as a professional artist. Wow. And, and now jump us to 2022. What is this uh, company and artist doing in this crazy year? Oh, gosh. Look, you know, um, you, you know, I think anyone that's listening in terms of our industry at the moment, boy, it's been tough, hasn't it? Yeah. Look, the last couple of years, I'm not going to lie, have been, have been really tough. Um, and it's been tough uh, both as a, as a producer, it's been tough um, as, a, as, a, um, as a director, but it's also been really tough to watch what's happened in terms of community theatre within our, within, within Dunedin. And, um, and, you know, 
we 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 all know what's happened over the last couple of years. You know, we've been we've been resilient, which is you know, if there's any if there's anyone in this world that's resilient, tenacious, and and, and has tenacity, it's it's those that are in the arts. You know, we 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 get knocked down and we get back up again, and away we go. But it has. It's been really tough to sort of see um, production after production uh, start and then stop and then start and then stop. And and then as a producer, there's been a couple of um, you know um, major productions that I've produced over the last couple of years that have started and stopped and then stopped. And with that comes loss, you know, uh, you know, financial loss on that. And um, so that's been really tough, tough to to see, but. Um, yeah, as we move into um, into 2022, you know, the world's quite different to what it was in 2020, and it's changing every day, as we know. And um, I think for the first time for me as a producer, I, I feel that there is um, there's a little little bit more light shining through than what there has been, and certainly in the last six months, anyway. And that's given me, I guess, the um, the confidence again to maybe invest inside um, some productions again um, of my own and and start to create again without getting sort of, uh, you know, I guess too down on the fact that if I start something, it's only going to be ripped away from me. So look, I, look, I guess I guess there is a big positive angle to that. You know, I don't want to be all doom and gloom on that because we know that that's been part of our industry for so long. But I, I really feel that, um, that the, the light is shining a little bit brighter now and you know, the next um, three, four months are going to be really instrumental in us getting going again. And uh, look, I can't. Oh, look, I can't wait. Yeah. I'm so excited about that, and I, I just can't wait. And look, and I know I live in Dunedin here, and and, and I'm, I'm heavily connected to our um, theatre community, musical theatre community here, and um, and I know they feel very much the same way. And um, and we can't wait. Just can't wait. Tell us a little bit about the Handy series. Oh look, this has been born out of out of um, my boredom, really. To be perfectly honest, um, you know, there's not been a lot of opportunity to produce, and and I I just kind of sat here and I've gone, look, I need to. We've used this word so much, haven't we? We need to pivot. We need to find ways to do things. Um, boy, you're the best at that, Emil. <laughs> I know that. I know with what you do, you know, stage antics and stuff. You've, you've been amazing with that, and, uh, and that's great. It's fantastic. But um, look, the Hundy the Hundy concert series is a series of concerts that uh, are only for a hundred people, and um, and so there is a, a a nightclub here in Dunedin called Catacombs, and there's a fantastic restaurateur here who owns that particular venue, which hasn't been open for a long time because no one can dance inside uh, hospitality venues at the moment. And so um, I approached Andre and said, look, I've got this idea. What do you think? And so he said, well, let's transform my nightclub into a cabaret club. And uh, let's try and find a way to make some money for me and make some money for, uh, for DKCM and also um, make some money for some artists that are like really struggling. That is so cool. And so we um, so we created this Hundy concert series. We've got four concerts through April and May. You know, the first one is um, is MJ Acoustics and Michael Jackson Acoustics, a six piece, and 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 they are very much just sit down, um, enjoy a platter, enjoy a glass of wine, and watch these mini concerts, which are only seventy five minutes long, and and they are um, and we do two in a night, one at six thirty and one at eight thirty, which gives us that capacity going through of two hundred people. And um, and it just means that we can sort of generate some revenue and some income for those that are 
are doing it a bit tough at the moment. So that's been the, the that's been the catalyst for doing it. And uh, but but it's it's been fantastic to watch it unfold. And you know, Michael Jackson acoustic. Uh, then we go into um, the ultimate Buble experience, and then we go into um, um, unplugged, the best of the eighties, and then uh, the last concert in this particular round is um, is Kelly Hocking, who's very well known. Um, well, certainly here in Dunedin, but also her name um, moves around the country as well. And um, she's doing a fantastic show called um, Rags to Witches, which is her journey through uh, her music, her musical theatre journey through the various shows that she's done up to the point of playing Glinda in, in Wicked. And, um, and so, yeah, so it's, a, it, it's an exciting time and it just gives us an opportunity to sort of get excited about getting back on stage and performing again. Uh- and I love the fact, Emma, that that it's Doug's, you know, roped in a venue that also, you know, there's so many venues that are struggling for lots of different reasons. In your case, mentioning the dancing, what a cool way to bring those two fields together. You'd right. think now, perhaps, since we're relaxing now, um, who is a close contact, people are able to return to work, etc. We must be getting near the end of this hundred restriction if we're starting to live with it. He says, hopefully. With you, I'm with you, Stephen. I think so. I, I, and again, I'm, I, it's all crystal ball gazing, isn't it? At the end of the day, uh, um, who knows? But but for the here and now, we we have to do something. Yeah. And I feel, yeah. and I really feel that. I feel I've felt um, quite lost over the last, you know, certainly over the last year. You know, as you said, uh, Emma. You know, I I made a a, re- a real conscious decision at the end of uh, 2020 to to go into radio uh, in in 2021. And you know, f- for lots of reasons, that didn't work out for me. I, 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 it just didn't sit for me. It wasn't an area that I felt um, that I was at my best in. And so um, I made the decision to leave it and, uh, and, and came back into my industry and well, our industry. And, um, and that's been tough. But, um, f- you know, I just I, I just felt that I needed to I, I need to keep doing something and I and um, Emma we've known each other a long time you know me like I, I've got a million balls in the air all the time and it hasn't been that way for a long time and so it was time to get going again and we yeah. should probably tell our listeners that you're actually in the Buble concert yes <laughs> <laughs> see he didn't say that did he no <laughs> I just wish our listeners could see his smile. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a smile, Stephen. I am in it, and and look, there's a particular like the big band music has a particular place in my heart. You know, it's a it's a it's an era of music that I grew up with with my with my parents, and uh, you know, um, Frank and Dean and Sammy is is you know to me are just some of my absolute legends. And uh, but then in saying that, you know, we know that Buble brought this back really. Brought back that genre of music uh, into the commercial sector um, a few years back, um, and and has done very very well with that. And so, uh, when I was talking to the team, I was talking to uh, to, to Greg McLeod, and I was talking to uh, Luke Butson, who are who are two local lads here who have done a lot of musical theatre here. Um, I said, I've got this idea for the Buble experience, and they said, Well, only if you get on stage too, mate. And I'm like, Okay, let's do this. So yeah, it's oh, yeah. Uh, we'll sing a, we'll sing 20 songs from Buble and, and we can't wait. Now, tell us, um, we have a lot of young arts practitioners that listen to our show. What would you be saying to them at the moment, given, like you said, the 
crystal ball gazing and everything, what would your words of advice be to a young person, maybe starting to what thinking about going down this pathway? What would you say? Oh, look, you know, um, you know, I remember when I started in the industry, I was fortunate that I started in the industry in, in the late 90s in terms of when I turned pro was in, in, in the late 90s. And New Zealand was alive with, it was alive with, um, you know, there was lots of musical theatre companies touring through the country and there was lots of, uh, you know, the, the, the film and television sector was alive and it was vibrant. It was, it was a great time to be in it. And so I guess I, for me, I sort of started in a bit of a golden era. But in saying that, you know, if we kind of fast forward to now, it is a tough, it, it was always, it's, it's a tough industry. It is such a tough industry. And, and, and those, those that, are, that are out there studying and that entering into this, into this world, you know, um, we could sugarcoat that and say that it's, that it's, you know, they'll be okay. But the reality is, that our industry is going to take some time to write itself and to build that confidence back in terms of audiences coming back to theatre and feeling safe inside theatre again. Um, and, so, and so as a byproduct of that, producers are going to be a little bit, um, you know, gun shy of, of, of sinking big dollars into, into productions. And, and certainly that, that, pro, that pro industry is going to, going, to be, um, it's going to be a little bit tough for a wee while. But I can tell you now that uh, if I could say this to anyone that's that's out there and they're, and they're thinking about the industry or they're about to um, graduate or they're still in training, they're still training, um, you know, if you can get through this in terms of your tenacity and your will and your drive and your, and your, and, and the, and the only thing that's going to pull you through that is your passion for this fabulous, fabulous industry that we're a part of. If you can get through this, um, then boy, it will put you in good stead moving into your career forever. And, um, you know, I, I thought that I had needed to be tenacious, but I can tell you now that, that those that survive this now and, uh, and out the other side in, say, another year's time, um, you've, you've uh, got some great skills to, to make sure that you uh, have the best shot of succeeding in this industry. Fantastic. So tell our listeners, where can they get tickets to come along to the Hyundai Concert Series? No, thanks, Ian. Well, listen, yeah, um, so uh, Hyundai Concert Series, uh, you can buy tickets from um, www.dkcm.co.nz. Um, and there's, uh, there's four different concerts on sale, and, and we're already looking to program more concerts into May as well. So, um, yeah, look, if, if you're down in Dunedin, uh, by all means, please, uh, please book tickets. If you're going to travel here, look us up. Come and see a show. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Thanks, Doug. Great talking to you. And we look forward to hearing how the Hyundai series goes and what you might have next in the pipeline once we can get past our crystal ball gazing period. Well, thanks so much, Stephen. And um, and Emma, it's been an absolute uh, privilege. So thank you very much. You're doing a great job.
Michael Bublé with Home. And now we're back with a returnee, the amazing Eileen, who was with us in September last year to talk about Black Wolf, which was the second in a three-part trilogy. And now we're on to the third one. We're here to talk about Black Spiral. How are you this evening? I'm great, thank you. Yeah. So Obviously, four months of lockdown in Auckland gave you the time to get through from September to now <laughs> to have the third book ready. Yeah, well, actually, I, I wrote finished this in the first lockdown, I think. That was 2020. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I was sitting in a tent at one stage because we we're so bored at home that we um, pitched a tent in the backyard because I think it was around Easter 2020. And there's a photo of my daughter and I sitting there both with devices. I think she's got the iPad and I've got the laptop and I'm just straining my brain trying to pull all the threads of this trilogy together. But it was quite quite a nice change. So, um, yeah. 
uh, we were interviewing an author earlier about working on a series and how much planning forward as an author you have. When you started book one or were working on book one, did you have an idea of what book two and three would look like or did I it kind of... No. I had no idea. I, at, at first, I didn't even know if it was going to be one book. And, and then as I started writing, I thought, oh, there's a lot that goes into building a new world, even though it's just set about 15 years in the future or something. So then I realized it was going to be at least two books. And then it sort of realized it was going to be three, but I did not forward plan it. I sort of made it up as I went along, which is why writing book three became quite it. But that's the way I write. But yeah, then I had to go, okay, how do I pull this all together? <laughs> and does, does book three give some closure to that or is yes. there the temptation to write book four? Oh, no. So what I've done is I've now got the children of these characters, the next generation, and those two books have been written. They're going through the printing press. Well, no, I mean, going through all the editing, et cetera. So, so yes, I couldn't leave the world behind, but I've moved on. So Indigo Moon will be released in, I think, September this year. That's part of a duology. Yeah. Brilliant. So tell us, what is Black Spiral all about? So in Black Spiral, um, the two main characters, um, Violet and Jono, they've they've managed to escape the Foundation's clutches. So the Foundation were trying to utilise their special talents that they had. So because of the virus they were afflicted with, most of the people who got it died. But the teenagers who have survived have extra sensory powers. They can read minds, but they can also process things a lot better. Um, and they can send forms of themselves, like an astral projection, travelling. So... So that this foundation really wants to utilize them and um, being pretty awful and trying to get what they want. So they've escaped, but now they've realized that actually they've got their tentacles, the foundation into the government and, and medical staff and everything so that they're, they're not, haven't really escaped and society hasn't really escaped. So they need to work out how they're going to really free themselves and find out what the truth is. Yeah. Can, can someone pick this book up having not re read the previous two? No, you, you really would need to read the previous two, whereas with my follow-on duology, you don't need to, you won't need to have read these three. But no, you, you will need to have read them to get the benefit of what's going on. Yeah. And the fact that it was about people that were inflicted with a virus, when you started writing this mm. trilogy, yep. was COVID a thing then? No, because I started it in uh, March 2019. And I remember it because it was a week after that, the horrible massacre in Christchurch and a friend and I were doing the only writing retreat I've ever done just up north. But I, I had measles in my head because there'd been a measles epidemic the year before mm. and you know, it was awful in Samara especially. Um, and I was just thinking, oh, what if the vaccination rates fall so low it mutates into something that the vaccines won't fix? And it, I just took it from there. Um, so no, but so but it was really weird because I was thinking about what would happen and people were washing their vegetables and the schools were being closed and I'd never been through that before and all of a sudden it was happening. <laughs> so so when I was writing Black Spiral, it, yeah, it was happening and it was really weird. Yeah. And how far ahead are you now planning your next book series, etc.? Like do you do you have this mapped out for several years or is it complete one and thinking about the next? So I've written the the duology is all complete and they've got covers designed and everything. I haven't thought about a follow-on at this stage. I, I may do, um, because it's once you've created a world, it's kind of cool, actually. You can sort of build on things. But I've gone back to reality for a while, and I'm writing some more reality, contemporary fiction type stuff. I love that line. I've gone back to reality for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah, back to reality. Good. <laughs> Speaking pre of reality. Pre-pandemic reality, because it's oh, a bit yeah. hard to write in the current time, because it's so uncertain. You think, oh, 
no, I, something might completely change by the time this gets published. You know, we might, Europe may not exist as it is anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Oh yeah. my goodness, yeah. Yeah. And speaking yeah. of reality, you know, your your real world is as a haematologist at North Shore Hospital. Yeah. How, are, how are you and your team coping in these crazy yeah. times? I mean, are you finding time to write amongst yeah. a pandemic? Yeah. It's funny, actually, because I, I, well, we've got some shortages in our service, not just because of COVID, but just because we're between some senior medical staff and I'm the, I'm the head of department. And so we brought back a retired colleague to do two clinics a week and he said, everyone seems more complicated now. And I said, oh, yeah, well, we can't really see the simple ones anymore. We give advice on those. And he said, and, and my glasses keep fogging up with this mask. And I mm. said, it's not what it used to be. So my life used to also involve conferences and in-person meetings. I might fly to Wellington to meet with, you know, to, to talk about health guidelines and this and that. And it's all via Zoom. And and actually a lot of the fun stuff's been removed, unfortunately. Yeah. I still like medicine, but, you know, it's go to work, come home. And that didn't used to be my life. But, um, yeah, last Friday, not this one just gone. Last Friday, we were 450 nurses short at Waitemata District Health Board. And so that's been a big shortage. And so we were redeploying the nurses within our service. We couldn't release them elsewhere because we were trying to keep giving chemotherapy to our patients. We treat a lot of cancer. And a lot of the colleagues in my department with teenagers um, or young people have got it off them. And so then, but a lot of them were still working from home if they weren't to unwell. Somehow I've escaped, even though I have a 14-year-old. <laughs> so, yeah, the hospital is just every day. You don't know what to predict, what's happening. But I feel like our teams really come together um, and everyone's just doing their best and making it work. So I'm really proud of them. It's been good. Yeah. So being able to come and go into a different reality or yeah. into a book is a good way to wind yeah. down. It's a nice way to escape. So, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and as I said, I'm writing the books I'm writing at the moment. I've set them in 2019 just because I'm like, well, then at least I don't have to worry about, yeah. you know, because um, yeah. I had to dial another book, an adult book back two years because it had gone written forward into what would have been pandemic time and what I wrote wouldn't have been true anymore. You right. know, characters wouldn't have been traveling between countries and things. So um, when you were nice growing up as a teenager, yeah. did you ever envision yourself you know, be, becoming a haematologist and an author who's writing such a, a, a mix of books. Well, t- yeah. take us back to the teenage you. Oh, well, the teenage me was writing a book. I was actually writing a fantasy book um, and I finished it the summer after I finished high school and I sent it off to Penguin. That was my first rejection, actually. But at the same time, I really wanted to do medicine because I think I knew that trying to be a writer was would be hard and probably wouldn't pay the mortgage. So, um and I kind of dropped the writing dream for quite a long time, thinking, well, I guess that was something I used to do and I've missed the boat. And I just feel like I'm so lucky and privileged to be able to pursue both my dreams. Like I've both my dreams have come true. And I've had a lot of failure along the way. I didn't get into medical school the first time. I had to do a whole another degree to get in. And of course I got turned down the first few novels I tried to publish. So I feel like persistence has paid off, but I'm also just incredibly lucky. Yeah. So it's an awesome place to be. Brilliant. Well, Eileen, your books are available where all good books are sold and also as e-books. Check out The Black Spiral. And audio. They're on audio books too. Audio (laughs) as well. You've got the whole range. If people want to track you down as an author, how can they get in touch? Um, So they can – I've got a website, so they can just go eileenmerriman.co.nz or they can send a message through Penguin um, or my agent for High Spot Literary. Yep. And just to say, this has also been um, optioned for a TV series. So hopefully, fingers crossed, Ooh. 
Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much and all the best in this crazy time. And we look forward to September when the jewel, not jewelry. Yeah, first of the geology, Indigo Moon, it's called. Yeah. Comes (laughs) out and we can talk to you about Indigo Moon. Great. Thanks for having me.
And that, of course, was I Know Him So Well from Chess the Musical, which hits the AATS Centre this June. Tickets available now at aucklandlive.co.nz. Now, Emma, our listeners may remember last week in Sharon's book reviews, she reviewed The Water's Dead by Catherine Lee. And we hadn't heard from Sharon for a little while, and she absolutely rated this book very highly. Thank goodness, because we are delighted to welcome the author herself, Catherine, to Kick Arts. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Great to have you. And if you know Sharon, she's a tough reviewer and you've got a gold star. So well done. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) And you're no stranger to writing. So look, before we unpack The Water's Dead, let's talk a little bit about your journey in writing and fill our listeners in. When did it all start for you? It probably started in the mid-90s. I haven't been writing since a child. And, you know, some people write for years and years and, and but I, I was more of a reader. And then I went to work in with Barry Coleman, oddly enough. Um, I was selling internet, um, <laughs> like I know, satellite internet, um, international satellite space. And I went to work with Barry Coleman and I was positioned, I, I was located in the BNZ Tower with all his reporters. And it was just wonderful. And I did it. I thought, I'm going to do some writing. So I did a creative writing course. And one of my dear friends there, Deborah, she was so supportive. She said, oh, you're such a good writer. Whatever I wrote was absolute rubbish. But she was so supportive. I think it was reasonably well-written rubbish. <laughs> but it was rubbish. You know, you start when you're a writer. When you start writing, every, I think almost every author has about three rubbish books tucked in the drawer that they're glad nobody ever saw. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what it's like. I think it's like the Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, 10,000 hours. And I see as well, I love the fact that in your bio, it says that you're a gamer and that PS4 gaming is something you like to do. It is. And I mean, I don't do The Sims or anything like that. I did, I do zombie killing and, you know, and um, The Last of Us and Darksiders. And I just love the good old hack and slash, you know. (laughs) It's interesting, Emma, because we've had authors tell us they like to relax in a spa pool. We've had others that, you know, like their morning tipple. Um, And here we've got an avid gamer. I just love it. But, you know, the games nowadays, they're not just running around hacking and slashing. I mean, Darksiders is. But the likes of The Last of Us, they're they're starting to come out with beautiful stories attached to them. You know, so you run through the story and they're they're an an emotional roller coaster sometimes. And those those are the games that are doing really, really well. So there's a lot of story involved, not just killing zombies, although they are also really fun so is that where the wanting to rock well, i don't know if wanting is the right word but is that where the interest in creating a thriller came from um no, look i i have been a gamer for years and years and years i had an amstrad so that was in the 90s uh, you know oh, they, bring back the amstrad yeah. and the commodore 64 come absolutely. on 
absolutely. So I've been gaming since then. But I think my love of writing came from all my reading. I read all the Ruth Rendells and the, you know, the Colin Dexter and, and Manette Walters and all those thriller murder mystery writers. And then I read all of Ed McBain because I just absolutely adored him and I never forgave him for dying, actually. But um, he wrote uh, the 87th Precinct, which was what Hill Street Blues. I don't know whether you remember Hill Street Blues. That was based on his 87th Precinct. And instead of just making one character the um, the main character he made the actual precinct the main character and I love that idea so I'm I've tried to do that in the waters dead and have the same you know detectives that work around the di involved you know in in the next book so, <laughs> so walk us through the waters dead it's set in the far north yes tell us what without obviously giving away all the trade secrets um, what's the story about? It's about uh, a young Maori woman who's found bludgeoned to death in a waterfall pool. And the DI, I mean, I've talked to a lot of, I've talked to Maori, I've talked to reporters, and not reporters, I've talked to um, detectives, and I've talked to forensics, you know, just to get the background. And our police procedures are actually different from overseas. Our our, um, whole procedures are so intricate and careful. And I thought, you know, walking that that razor edge between cultures and to get to the the bottom of who killed this girl. And Nairi has started and... I mean, once you've got a body, you really need to go through all finding what they did in the last 24 hours, who they're involved with, what their background is. But she's only just started and she discovers that the last time the victim was seen, she was looking after a six year old diabetic child. And so that puts the puts the pressure on her to find out where the killer is, because the killer will have the child. Yeah. Nice. And who do you... Sorry, Emma, go for it. I was going to say, is is this a future New Zealand miniseries? I hope it's more than a miniseries. Well, you mean a miniseries on TV? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a great script. How would I love that? I would love it because what I want to do is is bring in uh, over the series the different detectives and what's in their lives and what's going on in Nairi's life. Um, Because I think that when you adore characters, you relate to them, you relate to their problems, you relate. And and I didn't want a a murder mystery that was just, oh, cop has dead body um, and has to find the meanie who killed them. I wanted that real feeling I see detectives, you know, DIs, you know, um, interviewed on TV. And they they want to find who killed their loved one for the family. You know, they're in touch with the family. It's that emotional roller coaster that they must go through. So talk us through the planning of writing a series. We've chatted to lots of authors who write the standalone books. 
but I imagine there's quite a forward-thinking journey you need to do, or are you only sort of seeing this in the next story ahead at any given time? I I know that the backbone of Nairi's journey, uh, I can see that in the future. I'm a pantser, what they call a pantser. I don't, I, I start writing and I wrote three endings for this because I had no idea who done it. None. <laughs> and Love then it. night I woke up and I thought, oh my, am I stupid? That's who did it. So I knew if I couldn't figure it out, <laughs> it would be a bit of a twister. And from what I can gather from my readers, they've all gone, oh, that was a twist. So, and that's what authors love. That's what you love to hear. Fantastic. So anything outside of this series going on or are you a complete one thing at a time? Oh, I'm an everything at a time. <laughs> and I've got other things I, sh- I want to work on, but I have, you know, I've got my border and she is just wonderful. And I said, you know what? I started writing a series of humorous girl detectives in school and they're really nerdy and she said please just please just do one thing at a time just get the next book out maybe the next book out and just concentrate on what you're doing because otherwise you end up with 65 half finished things (laughs) so if you were to to go back in time and sit down with your 16 year old self knowing what you know now and the advice you're getting what would you tell the 16-year-old you? Have more confidence. Um, I, I kind of had a bit of a... I had a severely disabled daughter. She, her syndrome was one in a billion. Wow. So, yeah, so it was very rare. And I had her come home to live with me for a long time. So I was caring for her and I lost her in 2014. So she shaped my life in ways that, um, you know, I'm then in directions I may not have gone and including writing. So with my writing, I quite often have people with disabilities and and things like that so at 16 I would never knew that that would have been going to happen however when I was at uh intermediate school I remember they said to me you know the teachers said now we're doing we've got a poetry contest coming up and we need somebody to you know represent the school and I said all right I'll give a reading and and I got up and I gave this reading and everybody clapped even the horrible boys down the back clapped (laughs) And and the teacher said, you were brilliant. We would like you to represent our school. And I said, I don't want to. I'm too scared. Mm. So who knows where that would have gone. Yeah, absolutely. But we can look back and build on our, on our you know, previous things that we did, you know, and and think, you know what? I was scared then. Why be scared? And I see so many people shortchange themselves because what they they believe they see in themselves, and they could be so much more if they just stop worrying about what other people think. 
What a beautiful place to leave an interview. Catherine Lee, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. The Water's Edge is published by Brake Light Press. It's available where all good books are sold. And we hope we can catch up with Catherine when the next book releases and we'll see what Nairi's been up to. Thank you so much for your time. Running in this human race
that was Dreaming in a Life from Kiwi artist Body Electric. And now we're delighted to be joined by Sean Higgins, who is the pictorial curator of Auckland Museum. What a great title to have. Uh, Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great to have you. And you're here specifically to talk about Nature Boy, which is the photography of Olaf Peterson. And you've got an exhibition opening next month. So tell us all about this exhibition. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting one to be able to talk about because a lot of people won't know this photographer. They may not know that he's he's been around for a while. Um, he, he operated from about the 1950s in terms of something people might see to the 1980s. But uh, he doesn't really appear in a lot of photography books. He was a very modest man, and I think um, that that's, goes a lot towards the fact that he never really sought to be in the limelight but um, this exhibition is all about putting him in the limelight, I guess you'd say, and um, revealing the work of a, a nature photographer who um, lived out west. He grew up in Swanson, and he spent his whole life there pretty much. But he did travel around the country a lot as well. And his interest was always finding that kind of verge between humanity and nature and looking at nature, but also having human subjects occasionally in the shot, really trying to find a mixture. Um, And I think it's quite interesting too, because Auckland Museum is mainly a social history museum, and we have an excellent art gallery in the city. But um, this is a photographer that kind of crosses those boundaries. So when you look in his work, you can say, oh, it's social history, he's documenting people, he's documenting places but he also comes across with a very strong artistic modernist angle, um, which he puts onto his work. And particularly in his kind of later period, once he'd been in the Auckland Camera Club, met a lot more people, perhaps been influenced by some of them as well. I think he he developed his own unique style, which he called a mood. His his photographs had a certain mood. And um, again, a third I should say, a third category, science, um, because he obviously goes into the outdoors with something like the Field Club and takes photographs of nature and documenting nature in a scientific way as well. So really, really crosses a lot of boundaries. So how do you decide as a curator which pieces of work you exhibit? It's never an easy decision. Yeah, I can can imagine, yeah. Um, So we have a collection um, which... Uh, Peterson gave us a collection in 1988, um, which is in the thousands, and um, prints, negatives, pretty much his life's work. And uh, in this exhibition, we have, I think it's about 65 works on display. So we've had to (laughs) drill down a lot. Um, One of the things about this show, um, the title Nature Boy, I should mention, um, comes from a friend of his who wrote to him and called him Nature Boy. Um, And having that nature focus enabled us to focus on just one aspect really of his career Um, he did commercial weddings and things like that he did um, some journalism but this is really about his nature photography this show and in doing that the sample reduces but it's never easy and um, there is a book as well and it has a lot more images than are shown in the show yeah the book just arrived in our office this week it's beautiful yeah and you will get a sense of, of exactly that, the beauty of his work. Um, I think it's a real pleasure to be able to show 
his original prints that he printed. Um, they have obviously aged through time, like many photographers' works, but they do show you how he was not just taking a picture, but also in the darkroom, he was practicing carefully printing and trying to achieve that mood that he aims for in his work. So how does someone get to a place where they are someone like this? Like, how did you decide to exhibit his work? Well, it was, it was a little bit personal, um, I have to confess, because I grew up in West Auckland as well. And um, many years ago, my predecessor showed me this collection and I was instantly captivated with Peterson as a photographer and that whole story of, um, actually, there's, a, there's another aspect to the, to the story that he had um, Scandinavian parents. So he, um, he had a Danish father and a Swedish mother. And um, he really has this enchanting crossover, if you like, with a little bit of the Scandinavian influence living out west and, and then going out and documenting and taking pictures of places out there. So I was um, pretty much in love with him from the beginning as, a, as somebody who really, he showed the best of, of you know, a place that, that was important to me and to a lot of other people. And um, some of the people that feature in the exhibition and the photographs have actually been interviewed as well, um, featuring as sound bites in the show. And the same message with them, this, um, this very personal connection quite often. Um, even as a child, you know, you, you feel comfortable that he's come and, and given you a, an amazing photograph in a very unique way. That's not a, a studio image. It's really uh, you out, out being who you are, I guess you'd say. And do you think that's what people coming to the show will get out of it, that recognition of a place maybe they call home or a place in what, our city? What do you think people will get from the exhibition? I certainly think some people will get that. Uh, there's, there's a large number of photographs, obviously, from West Auckland in the image, um, particularly Tehanga, which is um, his favourite place. Um, but there's also a lot of pictures from his travel um, so you do have um, pictures going right down the South Island, right down even to Stewart Island, Kuriora, and up north, he goes to the far north. So you've got all of these places that he's visited um, that kind of will flow into the, into the exhibition, but the majority will be places familiar to people out west. Um, I, I expect a lot of people will find them quite enchanting. Um, I should mention they're back in time, obviously. So um, 1950s to 1980s. Some people might be surprised <laughs> by the way places look in the 1950s. Yeah. And, um, and he, he had an ecological strain that comes through in, in his style. Um, he obviously went to places like Tehinga regularly and Muriwai and further around that region. And he observed those changes over time. And some of his works take on a, a quite cynical direction later. You see a change. In, in, and I think it's, it's as he's seeing, um, you know, things like the tuheroa beds that were on Muriwai, that were, people were coming and taking shellfish all the time, driving in. And um, eventually it was banned in the 70s. And I think some of these things affected him. And some of his work shows that, that change in approach. Um, almost a, a, a way there's a wonderful image called go home for example exclamation mark go home exclamation mark um, which has a piece of driftwood on the beach and a, a figure in the background but he's taken the shot so low that the driftwood looks like a giant tanifa um, 
basically warning the human, telling the human, go home. <laughs> mm-hmm. That sort of attitude comes through in the later pieces. Now, Sean, tell our listeners a little bit about you. How long have you been at Auckland Museum and what's been your journey that's led up to taking charge of an exhibition like this? Well, it's, um, it's an interesting journey. I've, I think it's been about 20 years that I've worked at the museum in some capacity. Um, and the, the, the journey started um, through what a lot of people do, I guess, is um, working on contracts, um, working on lottery grant projects. Um, a lot of our collection projects have happened through those sort of grants. And um, I, I actually did first work on the photography collection, which was great. Um, and then um, within about a year, I was seconded onto another project, which was the Sir Edmund Hillary exhibition that we did in um, 2003. And that was, that was really a, um, a big chance to do a lot of more of the image work on a show and to see how a show works. And then um, from there, I worked in some of the other departments at the museum as well. It wasn't always in the same area, which was really good because it was bouncing around. I went and did some further study. I'd already um, done a bachelor's and master's degree previous to working at the museum, but I actually went and did a museum studies degree as well because I felt that it was the thing to do to kind of sharpen yourself to the purpose of um, working in museums. And then whilst I was doing that, um, a permanent role in the area that I'm in now came up, um, which was um, working, helping. it was a um, collection management role, not a curatorial role. And that was all about um, doing the day-to-day, the huge work that's required to make a collection accessible, to look after a collection. They're probably some of the most important staff in the museum. They catalogue the things that you see. If you look at the catalogue online, and all of that was, was a learning period from, must have been another five years or so, um, before my predecessor, um, who was also a mentor to me, retired. And then um, I applied for his job and got it. So became a curator at that point. So it's almost like an old-fashioned story, I guess, that um, <laughs> you can actually get into a place and work your way. And, yeah. and, and it's, uh, it's nice to, to see that that can happen. So how many exhibitions would you be curating at one time? Um, Thankfully, not as many as (laughs) I used to. (laughs) Um, It it is quite demanding and um, some institutions do pump out a lot. And um, I think what we do now is we tend to focus on one to two really decent shows in our area in a year. And um, I think, and there's a bit of crossover. Sometimes they go longer, sometimes they go half year. The show will be going for a year. Um, but then there's parallel projects to that for the next shows that are coming up, mm. obviously. So um, I haven't commenced work on it yet, but I will be working on a show that's coming out next year as well. So after this one, um, but first we've got to work on a book project for that. So there's a lot of those parallel things feeding in. There's book projects that kind of work in publication and tandem. It's really good to have it work with a show, obviously. If you do the book first, like we did with this one, you've got quite a strong basis of research to build on. Um, You don't start from scratch. But it's really interesting when you do uh, an exhibition that is on something like Peterson, because um, we've got his archive, luckily. um, So we've got his correspondence or rather we've got the correspondence he received, of course, not the correspondence he sent. (laughs) 
And um, all of that material is, is also huge for an exhibition um, if you want to actually know somebody that you can't just pick up a book and mm. read about. You know, I can't look at a photography book and read about Peterson because he's just not in many of them. Um, so, so the research requirement is a bit extra in that you've got to find this and find people really as well. Yeah. And, and see what they, people who knew him especially. Looking back at your time at the museum, is there one exhibition, you can't mention this one yet because we haven't opened yet, <laughs> is there one exhibition that's really surprised you the most or you'll never forget because? Um, I think I think for me personally, the most influential one was probably the one I mentioned earlier, um, the big Serbian Hillary show because I got to work on it with him. Yeah, um, We've done yeah. shows since after he passed, but um, that was, that was just a unique chance to, to kind of see the point from the person that it's about to, which is different. I mean, it's great to make a show that everybody can enjoy to see. And obviously a lot of the people that we make exhibitions about are no longer with us, but to actually get somebody there and they know the, the focus of this exhibition and to have their perspective on that and to see what things mean to them was really um, something unique. Um, that you know, um, down uh, up to the basic introduction, and, and you know, meeting somebody like that, and finding his humility, and just learning just how how he was as a person. So a lot of the exhibitions that I do, I always try to find that connection to the people, and um, usually that's by finding. Is there a dream exhibition you haven't done yet that you would love to? If funding wasn't an issue, or people, <laughs> or whatever. Is there um, that one thing you'd love, the bucket list exhibition? Apart from something like um, being able to um, bring in, you know, magnum photographers or <laughs> worldwide focus on, on um, some of the things that we do. Um, I think one of them is, is, is likely to happen, actually, which is um, the early photography. So one of my other interests is, is um, the very early period of photography and um, what it meant to people what the evidence is for it. You know, um, we take a lot of things for granted now with um, just how common photography is through things like smartphones. And mm. I'm interested in that connection and what it was like in the 19th century to people mm. when this thing came out and suddenly it's like, oh, I can take a picture. Yeah. It's no longer wait for the painting. And just really interested in, in a really detailed dive into that, into what it meant to Māori, what it meant to Pākehā, what the whole concept of photography means, this magic, you know, it's a, it's a very magical thing. So um, that's, that's hopefully the next project. So. Lovely. I saw a great thing on Facebook this week, Emma, someone took a photo of a camera with a roll of film and it said, I used to pay $19 to develop 24 photos and guess what? I never took a photo of my dinner and put it anywhere. <laughs> I thought that was a, a nice reminder of uh, social media and the instant camera. Hey, uh, thanks so much for chatting with us. Nature Boy, the photography of Olaf Peterson, opens on Thursday the 7th of April this year and runs until March next year in the Sainsbury Horrocks Gallery, which is on Level 2, free with your museum entry. We wish you every success with it, Sean, and look forward to catching up with your next one. Thanks very much. And now we're delighted to be joined by award-winning performance artist, Alexa Wilson, who has attracted our attention in our inbox uh, by something called Rituals of Destruction. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. 
Now, we've talked a bit tonight with guests around having to pivot in these crazy times and reading your media release, you've definitely done some pivoting around this space in the last little while. But first of all, tell us, what is Rituals of Destruction all about? Yeah, so Rituals of Destruction is a live, uh, it was a live performance that I got Interarts funding for, so it's interdisciplinary. I was, we were exploring for the last year, kind of like how rituals can be quite destructive to certain, I don't know, can be quite oppressive potentially, but also running with how destruction can also be generative or regenerative as well. So kind of like a combination of things. And so we're exploring like a series of different kinds of rituals through history and contemporary rituals um, and just playing with them and ripping them apart. But obviously we got postponed last year. And then once again in the red settings, we had to cancel a live season. But because I'm an interdisciplinary kind of like video and writing person, I have also already done a YouTube channel as part of a master's project I did before the pandemic, which was speaking to a lot of crisis as well. So I had this idea to pivot the project into a performance menu of sections. So we, I had a feeling we were going to go backwards (laughs) in January. So I recorded lots of the sections in beautiful locations and like interesting locations around Auckland before we got hit by the red settings. So I have a lot of sections filmed and I've got like 30 sections as a performance menu that an audience can um, choose one to three sections of for me to edit for them or they can have all you can eat and have the lot if they like. So that's the project and so far, it's been out for a week, and I've pretty much only had all-you-can-eat people buying the project. Oh, and it's up for a while, isn't it? Through till the 9th of April? Yeah, I've got it up for a month, but yeah, we'll see how we go. I mean, I might extend that as well, but at the moment, it's it's up for a month. And they email me, so yeah, it's kind of got like a direct access to me, which is unusual. Like, I thought about whether we had like a kind of an easy click option but I felt like because I've done a lot of interactive work and I always try and counter the coldness of the online space and make it like more of an exchange like more personal that's cool do you think this is something you may do again in the future um or are you missing the live space no I'm honestly to be honest it's been an absolute nightmare doing live in the last two years I like produced an entire festival in 2020 it was kind of the only one at the end of 2020 in the world and that was very hard work and yeah just trying to do live is really not very enjoyable right now and the infrastructures uh, have been put under heaps of pressure too so for me I actually have been really enjoying moving into the like video and digital space I love film and so I don't know if I'll necessarily do like interactive kind of online stuff I might I don't know I mean I find it quite interesting and it's very like working with now and it's also like working with it like someone asked me if uh, the project was a heavy metal gig from the title when I was working last year (laughs) yeah it's kind of had its it's kind of in its own way had its own demise through yeah so like allowing it to be broken into a a digital project for me kind of conceptually fulfills itself because we live in quite a destructive time where things are being destroyed live art is kind of literally being destroyed the last two years 
and I see that as having all sorts of generative possibilities of like just conversations, how people want to move forward, looking at community, looking at what are these infrastructures that we're existing in. There's lots of problems with them. So like, yeah, I see the destruction can also be to, to force lots of other changes in the live art world. There's, I think there's, there's a lot of rethinking going on in that space, which is probably really healthy because, I mean, it's so unaffordable to put on shows in venues in Auckland alone, let alone like New Zealand. But, you know, these kinds of things, the ways artists are treated in the performing arts, um, all these questions are kind of coming up. And I think that's really positive. So for me personally, that's like quite a little political rant right mm. there. But, <laughs> and I'm sure there's like a, like most of the performing arts industry is like, you know, totally feels all of those things. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm I'm personally also because I did do the masters leading into the pandemic. I love the digital space and I love the online space and I love video and and I've, I'm interested in the intersection of live performance in public spaces, which you can record on video, which is what we did and yeah, and have that immediacy with audiences because you can put it through social media and there's a lot of kind of immediacy there. It's quite a performative space in its own right, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, Yeah. So for me, I'm interested in that reframing of like, okay, what's the space we can actually perform in? And Oh yeah. Social media, because this, this is quite a performative space anyway. Um, And to bring criticality into that space, because it's generally not very like it's, I mean, of course, it can get into lots of intersectional conversations in those spaces. But aside from that, it's like it's a space that people don't necessarily want to bring critical art into. So I find that really interesting because it feels quite disruptive. It feels like Mm. it it does feel like a kind of interruption, which I find interesting. And that's partly why I was drawn to doing it. And it's 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 building on what I do with the master's project. But in terms of the live stuff, I mean, it was awesome to work in a studio, particularly with Shani Dickens, who was one of my performers and collaborators because she was there with me the whole year and to do all of these crazy things through the year. But it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's sad that we can't get to show it live, but <laughs> I personally don't know if I want to postpone, any of it, you know, um, indefinitely yeah. again. It's nice to give it that conclusion. Yeah, totally. And to just reframe it and rethink things. And, and it's a conceptual project, so it can still be activated conceptually in the video and digital space and bring questions and conversations into those spaces, if that makes and, sense. And potentially bring more audience, because if you're not having to perform under the restriction of a maximum of 100, depending on your size, which may mean in an intimate space you can only actually have 50, you may find that a lot more are able to access it, especially those that are currently in isolation and can't go out yeah. And those out of Auckland. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. It was one of the, even last late last year when we were in the, I, I talk about um, early, middle and late lockdown from last year, but like late lockdown, I was just already rethinking my practice and, and, and being more interested in video because it can reach more people. Mm. Um, it is one of the, you know, that's one of the things that I've looked at 
um, in performance in terms of it's, it's, it has the beauty of intimacy and immediacy and gathering and all those really awesome things. And there's nothing like live. You, you just can't beat it. But also it is very restricted and mm. like it is limited to the, the group of people that are there. It's expensive. Not necessarily everyone can access it. And so um, I love that people can watch it in Christchurch or they can watch it in America or yeah. friends in Europe or whatever or in Asia like you know it's the, this is this was one of the questions in my masters why I did a YouTube channel because I was looking at um, nomadism as well like the boundaries across the world can be transcended through the internet mm. and we watch that now like with the borders closed um, because of the pandemic that the internet is a place that is borderless like in terms of it's not nationalistic as a at all as a space it's it's which is a strength and there's so much that we've you know we've grown so much as a global village through mm. the internet and through con- connecting and um, solidarity and stuff with the internet but yeah audiences as well definitely so much more ex- you know and I think that was maybe if we're looking for silver linings of lockdowns and things realizing that we can work remotely and still contact people and and in fact it's easier to contact people now I think we were all kind of like how long does it take to fly to America but the fact that you can have training performances Mm. conversations so much you know everyone like yes why didn't I buy shares in zoom in 2019 I do not know totally yeah Absolutely. Um, and one of the one of the things I've noticed that in this in the pandemic that's been so strong is the video chat. Mm. Like the intimacy of speaking with people through video has been one of the strongest parts that's been activated through the internet mm. um, in this time and as a relational thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Alexa, how can people track you down and have access to rituals of destruction? <laughs> yeah, if they just, if the, people can search my name, Alexa Wilson and Rituals of Destruction, they'll probably find it. Also, I'm on a website called Cargo Collective. So between those three things, searching, you'll find the performance menu. Fantastic. We'll give you the instructions on how to email me and which sections you're interested in watching or whether you want to purchase the whole the whole lot. Cool. Um, Get out there and support. Purchase the whole lot. We'll pop it up on our social media on KickArt so you can track it down. And it's playing through until April the 9th at this stage, may have an extended season. And uh, we wish you every success and hope that soon your year sort of relaxes a little bit to enable you to do some more live performing. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, Emma, another fantastic night of guests in a real mix. And don't forget, if you've got something to promote, we would love to hear from you. We keep our website up to date. We use all of this latest social media. Plus, of course, we can chat to you here on air. And one thing that came in our inbox, box this week the tuning fork is back for another round of fork and funny a monthly showcase of the country's best comedy chops it's this friday the 25th of march and it's an all-female superstar lineup coming together to celebrate the outstanding talent of women in comedy join ursula carlson bridget davies hannah campbell and janae henry Um, they are there for a raucous night out 
Find out all about it by heading to tuningfork.co.nz. Fantastic. We all need a laugh. We sure do. So what have you got planned for this week? Anything exciting or just work and rehearsals? Uh, Work rehearsals and a few meetings, board meetings, all those sorts of things. A mixture of ones in person and one on Zoom. I'm finding that at the moment, Emma, you've got that changes as well. We talked at the beginning of the show about people having to cancel rehearsals because they come isolated. It's the same with meetings and things for work as well. One minute you think they're coming to your office and then you discover actually, no, they're all isolating and they're waiting for you in a Zoom room somewhere. So you kind of got to have your diary updated by the second. You sure do. And then you've got other situations like I do know of some teachers that are doing the hybrid teaching where they're both online and in person at the same time. And I think that would be a little bit confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, look, to close the show, our dear friend, the AJ Sound, has sent in his latest song, Moth to a Flame. I really like it. Take a listen. Have a wonderful week and make sure you... Pick some art. Like a moth to a flame I'll pull you in, I'll pull you back to What you need initially
brush your teeth and don't forget to go to sleep. We'll be going live, same time under the stars, saying blah, blah, blah.